0: I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert vetted expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Paula Spencer-Scott, author of Surviving Alzheimer's, Practical Tips and Soul-Saving Wisdom for Caregivers, and expert in dementia and family care. Paula has written a dozen books on health and family, including some co-authored with physicians at Harvard, UCLA, and Duke. She runs the website survivingalz.com and has had five close family members who either have had or currently have dementia. You can learn more about Paula and her work at paulaspencerscott.com. So welcome, Paula. Thanks for talking today. Happy to be here. All right. So you and I have done a few different segments now. People can find it at the website, um, different podcasts on dementia and caregivers in particular and what caregivers need to do to take care of themselves. So we had actually before this, I'd taken put something out there for all of our customers and readers to give us their questions about caregiving. So let's do a little bit of a kind of a QA. and um, a It's kind of a hodgepodge of ideas, but these important questions that people want to know about caregiving. How about it? Okay. All right. So first question, probably one of the most difficult, should you tell a person about their diagnosis?
1: I am a proponent of um, full disclosure, um, and I think medical ethics um, is in pretty much agreement on that point, although um, as there's always exceptions. Um, Not telling is kind of, I think, a bit of a holdover from when Alzheimer's was such a, a, a Almost a taboo word, like cancer once was. Um, but it seems to me that we all have a right to the truth about our own well-being, um especially early in the disease, you know, our people's awareness kind of waxes and wanes about what what's going on, what's wrong with them. And I think it can be a kind thing um to be perfectly honest with the person. it's It can be reassuring. To somebody who feels this nagging sense of something's not right, what's happening to me? Um, to know that it, th- th- there's a reason for it,
0: and that hopefully there's a treatment protocol that can slow the
1: progression. In in many cases, there are things that you can do that can can slow the progression, or that you can take action and to to plan for the future. So you're know, making. You know, financial plans or, or addressing, um, you know, spiritual needs or, or, um, living well, um, advanced directive kinds of things. Um, some people just want to be able to like travel, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to, but now is, now is the time I'm going to do everything list. I can while I can. Yeah. Um, so how about this one? And I actually had a conversation
0: with an Alzheimer's, neurologist, um, who had written a book on Alzheimer's and she, she raised the question of whether or not you should tell friends and family and the world about a diagnosis. What's your experience and opinion on that?
1: Yeah, every family situation is a little different there. Um, I think that it's helpful for the same reasons of, of letting um, people know um, what's what and, and helping remove some of that stigma um, about Alzheimer's. And people can then be in a better position to... Um, be of help to you. But, you know, you know your friends and family in the world the best, and in some situations, you know, that might not be um, helpful. So I think it's sort of navigated um, individually. You don't need to put out a press release, but maybe quietly spreading the word can be um, supportive.
0: Yeah, her concern was there are those people who don't know how to deal with it. You and I spoke about loneliness um, of the caregiver in another one of our discussions, and the concern that you know, it almost becomes you go to the leper colony that a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, right. people don't know how to deal with it, and they pull back. Right, right. Complicated conversation. All right. Um, how about, so now as somebody, here's another question. As somebody's progressing, and they do may or may not have their full faculties about them, is it okay to lie to them? Or little white lies? Like... Did you do such, did you pay the bill? Did you take the dog to the vet? I don't know, whatever, some little question that you may or may not want to tell them the truth about. Those are really bad examples of questions I will acknowledge, though.
1: Well, no, that is a good example, especially if you've been asked it for the 50th time. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, in um, these are called, you know, these that sometimes they're called fiblets or therapeutic fibbing, um, and they're ways of smoothing over a difficult moment. And I think they do definitely have a role um, in in using them. It's typically used like it's a way to enter the person's reality and it kind of takes away the friction. So you could correct them or argue with them or snap that, yes, you've paid the bill, you know, for the 50th time. Um, But it's it's an easier way to just enter their reality. So the person says, you know, I'm waiting for John. You you could say, well, John's been dead for 25 years, but that's not going to resolve anything. Um, And so you could say something like, you know, you sure love John, you know, using the present tense as if John were around, but not, or, you know, do you mind if I sit and wait with you Um, or, you know, try to distract him? Well, maybe he's delayed. Let's have some ice creams. Just kind of entering into that reality um, is, it, it seems to me much less cruel or stressful than than correcting, arguing, having a battle of wills and trying to orient them to the reality that they're just not in.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an important point that you, you talk about in your book as well in terms of um, getting into their world, like to, to stop thinking that you're responding to them in a rational way in a rational world, but understand right. the perspective that they're in. They would if they could, but they can't. Yes, exactly. All right. So here's something that's not necessarily just dementia patients; it's everybody getting older. The dilemma of taking away somebody's car keys and/or
1: and, allowing them their independence. Yeah, it's um, it's it's preserving independence is such a big um uh, part of who who we are. Having having that that it becomes a really fraught question. And what you're doing is kind of weighing the person's desire for independence versus the potential for harm, um, to themselves or to others. And, um, if possible, especially early on, if you can involve the person in that decision, that is usually helpful in getting them in a, a lucid moment, um, to, to kind of talk about it and then try to solve the problem, um, for them. So you, you can, you could take away the, the keys, but you've created a problem, right? They can't get around. They need that independence. And so you have to kind of take the next steps to try to, um, try to do that. What are you going to do? How are you going to deal with helping them, them get around? It's, um, it, it depends on the person. My, my father was a, a lifelong, he worked for General Motors. He was a, a, a test track driver in his first, um, job and loved to drive. And he could tell that he was having problems and changes and voluntarily stop driving. In other situations, you know, people will do anything <laughs> to try to get to those keys. And then you have to really resort to more creative measures um, beyond, you know, hiding the keys, maybe, you know, disabling the car, selling the car. Um, it's, it's, um, it, it can be really tricky Get enlisting a third party, is a great way to do it. You can, um, you know, DMV guidelines vary by state, but you can report the person to DMV to have, you know, their driving tested, um, or get a doctor to be the bad guy and, and say, no, I'm, I'm recommending you give it up.
0: That's a great idea. Can you also, depending on who the person is and the stage they're at, like suggest often try to drive them places, et cetera, make, make a make accommodations for them so that, you're not taking away their independence, but you're I'll call it, lovingly supporting them and then eventually their I'll call it, they'll they'll their mental capacity or memory might erode enough so that they don't think about it anymore. So you yes, kinda kick that a, can down exactly, the road.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You know, so do what you can in the moment. You're causing distress. See if you how you can you know, help ease that distress and then I think that is what usually happens there, you know, their world shrinks a little bit. They're less, have less need for that. Hmm. All right. I have one more
0: question. And then we're going to take a break. Um, how about kind of, kind of related to about, um, telling lies to people. How about telling somebody who's got dementia about a death? Um, someone, either a friend or a family member who passed away.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's always depends on the situation. I think that it's most kind to inform the person, depending where they are in the disease, they may not remember what you've told them, and that can be um, fraught. My um, mother died, and um, we were shocked to see the next moment. The next morning, my father, came downstairs dressed he was ready to go to the funeral home like it was was amazing because he's pretty far along in his dementia the day after that he came downstairs and said are you ready to go visit your mother in the hospital and we had to tell him that she had died and he you know was very upset why didn't anyone tell me um but that's the kind of truth. That's, that's just the reality. Now, did we continue to correct him You know, every single time for the next two years after that? Um, no. <laughs> um, I think you have to just kind of play it situationally, but, but hiding the fact and pretending the person's alive. Um, if you don't have to do that is not very useful either.
0: Right. So it just depends. Like if it's a close person, and, obviously mm-hmm. you have to tell about your mother, but if it's your third cousin, Sadie, or the kid down the street. There's no reason to bring that into the conversation. Right. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back in a minute with some even more challenging, ethical, moral questions for caregivers. I'm talking to Paula Spencer Scott, one of the foremost experts on education and support for caregivers, those loving family members who share in the care and oversight of our aging population, including the growing number of people with Alzheimer's. Caregiving is intensely complicated from both a human and a financial perspective. At Bottom Line, we're your team of top experts in all aspects of your life, including caregiving, general healthcare, finances, estate planning, and more. We pride ourselves on providing guidance and support to individuals and families by helping them lead more informed and vibrant lives through our actionable, double fact-checked advice. Subscribe to Bottom Line Personal today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to BottomLineInc.com forward slash BLP. That's BottomLineInc.com forward slash BLP. All right, welcome back. We're here with Paula Spencer Scott. She is the author of Surviving Alzheimer's Practical Tips and Soul Saving Wisdom for Caregivers. And we're talking, we're doing kind of dealer's choice Q&A, your questions on some of the challenges and dilemmas that caregivers face in working with their loved ones. All right, Paula, now we're going to get to some tricky, tricky ones. All right. And this happened to um, a friend of mine. So, if you have a patient, a loved one who has serious dementia, doesn't know who you are, you love them, but they're mostly gone, can you date?
1: Well, that's why these are moral questions because there's there's seldom a a right or wrong, and it just depends on you know where you sit and what you think. Um, uh, I think that um, well, some people will say that it's for better or for worse, like you know, no matter what, you're you're stuck. But the reality is that Alzheimer's can be a very long illness that robs people not only of their health but their their mind, their personality, all the components of a of a relationship and um, Many people um, find that Um, they'll continue to look out for the person, provide care, but you also have to look out for yourself. And for many that means having a a relationship that can be fully reciprocal um, outside of the marriage. And unless you're in that situation, it's really impossible to know how you um, can make that situation. And I think those of us who aren't in that situation, should avoid judging those who have made that choice and that's the trickiest part of all i think that's where the, the big fraught um part comes in well and also
0: inclusion of the family because i can also imagine a whole bunch of resentment from kids if mom or dad starts dating while mom or dad are in the hospital
1: well they deserve to be kept informed but i don't know that that's their decision either
0: Yes. But again, we've talked in a number of these places about communication and keeping people informed all the way and having transparent, open, mature conversations about it. Um, uh, Letting the kids understand what you as a parent and a spouse are experiencing. So that it's not just from their point of view, thinking that, you know, you're replacing
1: the parent that they love and
0: running away from their obligations.
1: That's a great example of they they everybody has their own relationship to the person, and an, an adult child is kind of just focused on that aspect of it and not, you know kind of asking them to step outside themselves and see the the whole um, picture. You know another twist on this is that the person with Alzheimer's often develops an attachment outside of the marriage. Um, the famous case was the Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, her husband was in a care facility and and developed an attachment and you know it was the kind of thing like that brought him peace and pleasure and you know she didn't see a point in sort of separating him from that person um, in that facility which is something that sometimes happens
0: wow that's a tough
1: one yeah
0: all right let's talk about a little earlier stage of dementia um, sexual desire um, some patients will actually get a little a little less reserved in their sexual desires and behaviors and verbalizations. Um, how do you handle that?
1: Yeah, a, a loss of inhibition is the common feature of these frontotemporal kinds of, of dementia. So the person makes you know inappropriate advances um, or comments. Or sometimes um, that it's just a regular kind of Alzheimer's, but the person no longer recognizes their partner, right? So they mistake the daughter for the wife. Um, and, um, you know, it's again reminding yourself like, up, oh, this is, it's the dementia. Um, it's it's not the person and finding ways to sidestep it. Some people, um, when it happens a lot, you know, will use humor or um, emphasizing the relationship, you know, hi, dad, it's your daughter, Katie here, um, to kind of help set the stage. Um, a lot of um, preventative tactics that people have used are are things like, you know, you have to avoid um, even sort of super friendly flirtatious behavior with somebody who might be prone to doing that and just keep it all really neutral. Um, avoiding alcohol for those people, which can like further can let down anyone's inhibitions. And for somebody who's already impaired in that area can make things even worse.
0: Do men get friskier than women?
1: I think statistically that is true, but anecdotally, I have heard stories on both, uh, both sides. Wow. Score one, score one for the women. Cause I've only <laughs> watched some,
0: some men, absolutely. The inhibitions come down and it's fascinating what comes out of their mouths. Yeah. Um yeah. so how about if it's your spouse and I'll call it they're mostly mentally gone but they're making sexual advances to you. Do you make love with them even though it may not be the same person? But do you pleasure them?
1: Yeah, again it's, you know, it's what goes on between two people in their own bedroom. Um and and it's it's that um matter of kind of weighing you <laughs> in this situation. Um, you know, some people, um, they just can't, um, you know, that, that it's not a full fledged relationship. And, um, I know of, of couples who, you know, they just sort of, you know, the caregiver slept in a separate bedroom sort of to minimize, um, those kinds of opportunities, but, um, but maybe finding other ways to, to provide that kind of, um, tactile affection, just, you know, hugs and holding hands. Oftentimes that's, you know, satisfying, helps a person feel, um, comforted um, through non-sexual touching or, or you know, using distraction. Yeah, but still making them feel loved and attended to. Exactly. Yeah, you know, the one thing that
0: comes out in every every ounce of every conversation we've had today is the variety and the diversity and the uniqueness of every patient and every relationship. So there are no rules of thumb, <laughs> are, you know. Right. You have every caregiver has to work with every patient and loved one in a unique way and flow with who that person is
1: right that's why in the book i look at all these different i think there's 50 something different behaviors um that can happen and just a list of things that you can try here's why it's happening here's what you can try but there's just no absolute um, prescriptives of how to deal with any of this
0: it's so true okay so meanwhile i'm going to ask you one last question which you will not be able to give me a simple answer to which is the decision to put your loved one in a home and how to know when it's time to do that and how to deal with the guilt of, I say, you promised you never would. And Earl, and again, in another segment, you said, don't use those extreme statements of I never will, or I always will.
1: Yeah. And that's probably the number one usage of that. Always never is like, I will never put you in a home. Um, and I just, Cringe when I hear people saying that, because it just comes back to bite you in the in the guilt um, later because you just don't know what's ahead. So there's many legitimate reasons that people have to transfer from home care to a facility. You know incontinence just gets too much to to deal with, or there's a physical disparity, right? I often see a, a young, I mean, a frail, smaller woman who's trying to deal with a man. She can't even lift him, let alone help toilet him or help him to bed. Um, Somebody who requires 24-hour supervision, like a parent and you're working. Um, Or um, I think we've talked before about aggression and and violence. Um, But also, you know, a legitimate reason is you are just not comfortable or capable. We're not all natural caregivers. We don't all have the same reserves of of patients. Um, Some of us are really squeamish about, the kinds of things that we're required to do <laughs> um, at, at home that, that a generation ago people never were about dealing with catheters and home health equipment. I mean, there's, there's any number of legitimate reasons, and that's really between you and your family. Um, the roadblocks or the things that make it so hard, as you suggest, are the guilt. Um, those always promises, you know, the, the logistics of finding the right place. Um, and... Um, you know, I'm just, I'm not a fan of, of martyrdom. And so whatever you can do to shore up your own emotional reserves and support to help deal with that guilt. I mean, making the decision, not alone, it, you know, if you can make it with a doctor or with siblings or with a partner, um, to help kind of share the burden of that difficulty. I mean, these are really fraught things and knowing that you're, doing the best you can in the situation that you're in, and you get to define what best is for you. Nobody else does.
0: Yeah, and again, as you said, that it's, you're not deciding because it's inconvenient. You're going, you're deciding at a point where you, it's physically dangerous or risky to you or or the patient. Or you've reached um, just some kind of limit, a really
1: legitimate limit.
0: Yes. All right. On that very heavy note, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to thank you. You've been wonderful. Paula Spencer Scott, go to your website, paulspenserscott.com, and I appreciate your care and love for all of the people that you've tended to and for what you're helping all of our listeners to.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the thoughtful questions.